We're reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 42. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 12 into the second half of the book. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Good afternoon, fam. How are we doing? I'm eager to dive into God's words together, so let me pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word to light into our path and We also thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we might not just be left with a book filled with inerrant truth, but that we are filled with a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who reads our hearts and opens the words of these pages. And so we pray, Father, would you send your spirit now to open up our ears, open up our eyes to be able to behold the truth that you've given us in this word. And Lord, would you guard my speech? God, would you keep make the meditations of my mouth and heart pleasing in your sight? In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are board game players? A few in the house. When you play board games, like something like Risk, 
you typically have a few kind of personalities involved. Not everybody plays the same way. There's the person who is a constant maker of enemies, take no prisoners, is just overkill, destroying everybody on the map. I call it the diabolical dictator approach. That's my brother Stevie who just led us in worship. He's a straight-up mastermind at board games. You don't want to play him. Then there's the paralyzed approach, the person who's takes like hours on every single turn and as they think through every single possibility they're serenaded with a chorus of groans, right? That's my sister Noelle when, you, when she plays. And then there's the crazy impulsive type. The one you can never predict what they're going to do. They'll do the most random thing. You can't make your strategy based on them because they're never going to be rational. That's my dad. He'll even probably do the craziest thing and make up a few rules along the way. And then there's the person who's like in the corner doing their own thing, content to just have their little civilization and, and grow it. They're not getting into any conflicts. They remain neutral in all arguments. They are Switzerland. The Switzerland approach. That's what my mother-in-law is like when you play board games with her. That Switzerland approach, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't want to get involved in the messiness. I want to remain neutral in all conflict. Now, whether Switzerland, the nation, actually was neutral is beside the point. What is the point is that in that approach, there's a mentality that we all can relate to. The, the neutral argument. Stay neutral. Don't gang up with anybody else. Stay out of messy things, out of arguments, out of anything challenging. Just be like Switzerland. And let's be honest, sometimes this is a good approach. Sometimes you have a situation like if somebody is making arguments about something you really don't have an idea about, you haven't researched, where you should be neutral. I'm not sure about that. Or sometimes in this world of hot takes, where people are constantly making bold statements that they probably don't know anything about, sometimes it's refreshing for someone to take a more balanced, less polarizing position. But then there are times when being neutral is untenable. There's some situations that are not morally ambiguous. Think of the Holocaust or the transatlantic slave trade. You can't be neutral on those issues. They're just wrong. Or some things are facts. Some things are undeniably true, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like if you throw a baseball in the sky, it's going to come back down if you're on Earth because of gravity. Or, unlike Kyrie Irving says the earth really is round and not flat or Steph Curry wanting to tell us that we didn't go to the moon we went to the moon that's a, just a fact we got proof there are some things that are undeniably true and that is what Jesus is claiming about who he is and what he's come to do there's a whole host of things that we can be neutral on but we can't be neutral on the Jesus question and some of us today are here and you're uncertain if you're for Jesus or you're against him. Maybe you wouldn't say you're attacking Christians or you're out to get Jesus, but if your life was on the line and someone asked you if you're for or against him, you'd say, I am Switzerland. I'm neutral. I'm not for him. I'm not against him. And it's that neutrality in each of us that Jesus is addressing today. Maybe some of us are okay with some of the things Jesus said and did, we're on board with those, but there's other things that make us uncomfortable and we're neutral about those things. 
Jesus is talking to us if that's us today. And he's challenging us to come out of a fake neutrality and to stand truly for or against him. But this word from our Savior we heard so eloquently read comes in the middle of an exchange between the local authorities and Jesus. And at the very beginning, we read in verse 22, make sure your Bibles are open, we're going to be in it a lot, we read an amazing account of the healing of this person as if it's just like a footnote, and then they just go right past it. But let's not jump past that too quickly. This man was blind, and he was mute, and the cause was demonic oppression. It was like the triple threat. This guy was so dominated that his entire spirit and physicality was under the control of someone else. And yet Jesus completely and instantly heals him so that he starts speaking and seeing at that moment. And there's a a unique reaction from the crowd here. Jesus has been healing people. He's been doing miracles, right? We've read about a lot of them so far in Matthew. But this, this miracle had a surprising impact on the crowd. Matthew repeatedly says the crowd was astonished, like he does here in Matthew. But behind those words, there's a new word for astonished, existe me, which is kind of like the difference between being, I don't know, uh, intrigued by something and being utterly astonished by something. The crowd in the past has been like, wow, look at that. That's pretty cool. Look at him doing those things. Now they're saying, what's going on? My whole worldview is being dismantled. The crowd was astonished. And they're so astonished that they ask this question. Can this be the son of David? They're starting to ask questions about whether this Jesus is actually the Messiah. Now, in the original, it leaves no doubt that the answer to their question would have been no. You see, in Greek, they actually can phrase it in a way that tells you how you're supposed to respond. And in this, the phrasing should be no. They're not ready to admit that they're starting to wonder about Jesus' messianic identity. And I wonder why that is. I wonder why they're not much like, wow, he must be the Messiah. Well, they were very aware of the eyes of another group of people that were on them in that moment. Condemning eyes. Eyes that were authorities of the time. The eyes of the Pharisees. The, this, this had happened before. The crowd in the past had said, oh man, I've never seen anyone like this in Israel do something like this in Matthew 9. But never before had they said these words, is this the son of David? And now we see the Pharisees panicking. They're terrified. They know this is getting out of control. They've got to do something. People are starting to believe in Jesus. People are like drawn to him like a magnet in belief. People who are prostitutes, people that are in high places, in low places, all coming to this man. They needed to stop him. And so, their preconceived plan was put into action. In Matthew 9, they had already done it once. They had alleged that Jesus was doing sorcery. Their idea was this. If I can't undo the miraculous nature of what he's doing we got to pretend like he's using unlawful powers to do it. They'd already done it once in Matthew 9 and without a response from Jesus. But here, they're caught red-handed. Here, we have to imagine the Pharisees looking at each other as the crowd's astonished, nodding, putting their plan in place, sneaking through the crowd, 
making their way through, only for Jesus to stop them in their tracks and for them to turn around as they're addressed by Jesus. What does our passage say? It says Jesus knew their thoughts. They weren't going public with this. They were trying to spread it covertly, but Jesus stops them in their tracks, turns them around, and addresses them. And in his response to the, pl- the ploys of the Pharisees, we see some incredible words for us too. They apply to us as well. We're going to see a word that challenges us, a word that warns us, and a word that calls us beyond that Switzerland position, that neutral position with Jesus Christ. So let's examine Jesus' response from verses 22 to 37 now. Um, And we're going to break it up into three different sections in this first response. There's a rebuke, there's a choice, and there's a litmus test that Jesus gives. So this first uh, interaction is a rebuke, a choice, and a litmus test. Let's look at the first rebuke. So really... All the words in verses 22 through 37 can be interpreted as a rebuke. But here in verse 22, Jesus begins with an obvious argument. Divided kingdoms fall. Let's read about it in verse 22. Sorry, verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Divided kingdoms fall. Why was this such an obvious point Jesus was making? Well, the Israelites had their most powerful and rich time period when the north and the south were united under King David and King Solomon. They knew that divided kingdoms fall because Rehoboam was foolish and Jeroboam came against and stole the north from him. And from that point when the north and the south were torn asunder, the the history of Israel was one of utter domination, exploitation, being constantly controlled, partially wiped out, and exiled up until that point. And now they were under the control of Rome. They knew that dividing kingdoms don't, don't stay together. They knew that if Satan was giving Jesus power, if he really was committing sorcery, It wouldn't be long before Satan's power was gone. And so he continues. He proceeds along this argumentative line with a different point in verse 27. Let's read it right here. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Beelzebub here is another name for Satan. And when he says your sons, he's talking about the Jewish people of that time who practiced exorcisms. Acts 19 contains the account of people who were well known for practicing exorcisms. It wasn't unique to Jesus. There were other people casting out demons. It's like he's saying this. Are you telling me that I'm committing sorcery just because I'm casting out demons? Well, then you've got to indict all your people too. Because they're, they're casting out demons as well. And you can almost see the lump in the throat of these Pharisees, in the blushed, kind of frazzled faces as their arguments are being dismantled. And we might expect Jesus to just kind of push them to the side at this point. But no, he continues on. Let's read in verses 28 and 29. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So he argues that if he's truly able to cast out Satan through doing this exorcism, the means by which he's doing that must be more powerful than Satan's power. And what is this means that he refers to? He says, the Spirit of God has come upon you. Far from demonic, Jesus is saying that his casting out of demons was being done by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom was upon them. Only the Messiah could be acting under the power of the Holy Spirit in this way. And the probing question that the crowd had phrased as a hypothesis was actually a fact. Jesus was the son of David. So having just exposed them in front of the crowd, we think that he'd be done at this point too, right? Okay, so you've totally destroyed their argument. But Jesus goes on to give one of the scariest rebukes that is in the entire Bible. Read in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Whoa. Blasphemy against the Spirit is a big deal. It's being strongly emphasized here. And if you read it in the original, it's even more emphatic as he slides blasphemy to the front. Shout out that this is a huge deal. So what's going on here? Well, if you do a Google search about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you will find thousands of things written that are completely unhelpful. This is a, a section of Scripture that is misused a lot. So we need to be very, very clear about what this does mean and what this doesn't mean. So let's begin just by thinking about some questions. Why does Jesus say that the Pharisees were in danger of blaspheming against the Spirit? So why are they in danger of doing this? Well, they were just attributing a healing to Satan that the Holy Spirit had accomplished. They were trying to assassinate the character of Jesus. They were trying to undermine him, but they had gone after the power of God. Jesus is saying that you are in danger of this sin because you're trying to tell people that the Holy Spirit is demonic. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But wait, is Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit is more important than him? No, he's not saying that. He's unequivocally not saying that. We know that Jesus is co-equal with, with God. He is just as much God as the Holy Spirit is God. What he is saying is that the nature of the Spirit's work makes it even more damning to speak against him than the work of Jesus. So how are the, the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus different from each other? Well, remember, when Jesus came to earth, he came quietly, without a claim. And when he heals people, he often forbids them from spreading the word. When he conquered sin and death, how did he do it? He did it as a common criminal on a cross, a cross of shame, rather than as a conquering warrior. 
Rather than being lifted up on the shoulders of generals as they carried him along a victory parade, he was lifted up by soldiers of low rank and held up by nails in his hands. He came veiled in flesh. He came in humiliation. He came to be blasphemed. But the Spirit's work is different. The Spirit came to open the eyes of the blind, to illuminate our spiritual eyes and make us new from the inside out. Remember, the Spirit was testifying to the identity of Jesus by healing this broken man. And this, this work of the Spirit is undeniable. The Spirit had come upon Jesus like a dove to anoint him in his earthly ministry. And the Spirit fell at Pentecost to open the eyes of the disciples. The Spirit must fall on each of us to open our eyes to our need for Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. We don't come to Jesus and find him as our Savior unless the Holy Spirit comes upon us and opens our eyes. Remember the example of Peter? Peter spent all of Jesus' earthly ministry next to him, didn't he? He was one of the select few brought onto the mountain to witness the transfiguration of Jesus. He was one of the right-hand men of Jesus. And what do we find him doing right before Jesus dies? He speaks against him. I, I don't know him. He speaks against the Son of Man. He's, he blasphemes against the, the Son of Man. But what do we find when the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter at Pentecost? A transformation. The, the literal seeing of Jesus Christ had made an impact, but it was not enough. The Holy Spirit coming upon him changed this man so that he would write one and two Peter, so that he would stand up before a crowd of people and declare that Jesus was the Messiah, even though people were dying when they did that. To the point where when he was in prison and there was an earthquake and the gates came open, he would stay and preach the gospel to the guard instead of leave. He was changed by the Holy Spirit because the work of the Spirit is to seal and to make real to us the work of Jesus Christ. Think of Paul. Paul spent his life while Jesus was living trying to destroy all that followed him, trying to kill them. And when Jesus was revealed to him on the road to Damascus, he was transformed to a man who made it his business to bring the gospel to people that were unreached. You need the Holy Spirit. You could be walking the same streets as Jesus in his earthly ministry. You need the Holy Spirit. His work is to illuminate our hearts. Jesus had just healed a man so dominated by spiritual darkness that he couldn't speak or see. And when he spoke, the crowd of blind sinners were astonished. It was undeniable that this was an act of God. And yet we see the Pharisees refuting it. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? It's consciously refuting the undeniably true. It's consciously refuting the undeniably true work of the Holy Spirit. You observe what could be done by God alone and you make it your business to speak against it. So is there an unforgivable sin? Yes. We can't unwrite the word of God. It says it right here. But that sin is committed by those who have made it their life ambition to deny 
and to detract others from believing in the power of the Holy Spirit. So friends, please hear me loud and clear right now. If your mind has been adrift, come back. If you are afraid you have committed the unforgivable sin, you have not. Those who have committed this sin are not fearful. They are filled with hatred for God. Matthew Henry pastors us really well through this. He says, humble and conscientious believers at times are tempted to think they have committed the unpardonable sin. I spoke to my brother the other day, back from a previous season, and he was, he was telling me he lived under the fear that he had committed this sin for a season of life. That's not the intention here. As Matthew Henry has said, there's people that live like, under the fear they've committed this sin. Listen to what he says next. While those who have come the nearest to this sin seldom have any fear about it. The presence of fear is an indicator that you are being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry concludes by saying, The trembling, contrite sinner has the witness in himself that he has not committed this sin. So there is a sin. It's against the Spirit. And because of his unique work in opening our eyes to see the work of the Son of Man, there is a blasphemy that is unforgivable. And it's serious, and it's heavy. And Jesus then proceeds to finally flip the script. What does he call the Pharisees? Brood of vipers. Them fighting words, right? He wasn't demonically empowered. He wasn't doing things by Satan's power. But the Pharisees were acting as children of Satan. They were minions of the snake. They were children of Satan by the way they were acting. And so he begins with a rebuke. And what a rebuke, right? Dang, don't go toe-to-toe with Jesus. He'll take down your arguments, reveal your heart to everybody around you. But you know what? At that point, he doesn't stop. He doesn't push them aside. He lays out a choice. And he addresses us with this choice as well. So let's move to our second point. In his response, we see a choice in verse 30 particularly. Let's read verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's addressing the Switzerland in us, the neutrality. What about that position with Jesus? Can you be on the fence? It's not possible. Friends, those who are in what they believe to be a neutral position are often not aware of how dangerous that position really is. There is no such thing as a neutral position with Jesus. If you think you're neutral, you're on the side of the Pharisees. You're either for him or you're against him. Jesus is laying this out for us. He's telling us to choose. Will you deny the undeniable? Or will you bow your knee before the Almighty? Will you move beyond the questioning crowd to declare that He is what the Spirit of God is screaming to us? Every day the Spirit is testifying. Right now He's testifying. Jesus is legit. When you're singing those words, he's saying yes and true. Jesus really is God. He really did die for you. So we must choose. 
Where do we stand? What is our choice? How do we know? How do you know where you stand? Okay, so I just eliminated neutrality off my list of choices. But how do I know for real if I'm for or against? Well, Jesus lays it out for us in our next point. He gives us a litmus test. A litmus paper is something I use a lot because I'm a chemistry teacher. And you put a litmus paper into an acid, it turns one color. You turn it into a, a basic solution, it turns another color. It reveals what's inside the solution. And fruit are similar with a tree, as Jesus lays it out here. You don't have to dig up a tree to figure out if it's healthy to look at its roots. You just look at its fruit. And with human beings, the surest indicator of where we stand is the words that we speak. Verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what kind of words are we talking about? Well, Jesus goes on to clarify that it's not just any words. It's not the words I'm speaking right now. It's not the carefully qualified, polished statement. It's the words that flow out of us without thinking. It's the words that rush forth from the deepest places of our heart, rushing forth unchecked. Later, the ESV reads, for every careless word that they speak, they will be judged. And this careless use, it means it's, it's the type of word that isn't polished or prepared. It's raw, and it's speaking our hearts. So what our mouths say in our most unassuming moments is the surest indicator of where we stand. Not what we preach, not what we sing, necessarily, not what we prepare in an email to our pastor, but what we say in our rawest moments. That is the litmus test that Jesus gives us. So friends, what, does, what do your words reveal about your heart? What do you say when others aren't around? What do you say to your closest friends? Who are you when no one is watching? It's that fruit that shows the quality of your root. It's that litmus that reveals your heart. So let's be real. Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knows our hearts. There's no use in pretending. We need to really stop and evaluate our lives. Maybe our minds are busy with plans right now. We need to stop. We need to think. What do our words reveal about who we really are and where we really stand. And if you find yourself in a place where your words are revealing a rotten core, there's much grace for you today. The Pharisees tried to keep their hearts, their sinful hearts hidden. They tried to operate in secret, but Jesus exposed them in grace. He could have left them in their lie. He could have let them, with their plotting schemes, just let them do it and just gone on their way unchecked. He could have let the person running into the intersection go, but he screams at them, stop. He warns out of grace. He's warning us. And notice that he's not condemning the Pharisees. He's warning that they're, they're close to the point where they'll commit this sin. He reserves judgment and condemnation for the final day. And so for us, right now, we don't have to be like, crap, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. 
but we do need to open our eyes and heed the word of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's opened his mouth and he's declared to the Pharisees that there's no neutrality. And so we, we get the end of our first interaction. And we have to wonder ourselves, what are the Pharisees going to say back to that? Right? You'd imagine there'd be a ministry time at this point where the scribes and the Pharisees would come at the feet of Jesus and he would just lay hands on them and pray for their unbelief. Well, let's read in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They respond with a request. We want to see a sign. Maybe you're asking yourself, wait, didn't they just witness a blind and mute man who was demonically oppressed, delivered like in that moment? What are they doing? Why are they asking? Well, this is a little different. They're asking for a specific fulfillment of a messianic prophecy here. They're saying, okay, so you're so tough. You can exercise people. Great. You're not doing it by demonic powers. All right, I guess you got us there. But prove that you're actually the Messiah, not just some powerful dude. We want to see you fulfill something that leaves no doubt. What they ask for is more than a miracle, and what they ask for reveals their heart. This is our final point in Jesus' response. A sign. He's given them a rebuke, a choice, a litmus test, and as they ask him, To prove that he is the Messiah, he responds by giving them a sign. I did not expect this when I read it originally. So you're going to actually give them what they're asking for at this point? Jesus says that unbelievably there will be a sign. Wait a second. These people had witnessed miracles. The Ninevites are the people that he he talks about here, right? Let's read about it. It says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Okay, so there's a sign of Jonah they're going to receive. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. They're demanding a sign, and the Ninevites, who were like the capital city of Satan, who hated God, only took a racist, rebellious prophet's words to repent. They're asking for a sign when the queen of Sheba from the south came from the ends of the earth at that time to sit under Solomon's feet. And here they have before them Jesus, the better prophet. And they were asking for a sign. And they would receive a sign. What kind of sign does Jesus promise? The sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah had metaphorically died when he was swallowed by the fish, remember the story? Jesus really died. 
Just as Jonah's deliverance vindicated his message to the Ninevites, dang, this guy just got swallowed up by a fish. We should listen to him. Jesus would rise from the dead and cause many to repent and believe. So Jesus is like Jonah. The sign that would come would be like Jonah's dwelling in the belly of the fish and being delivered. But did you catch what he said? Someone greater than Jonah is here, amen? Someone greater is here. Jonah found himself in the belly of the fish. Why? Because he was trying to run away from God. And his sin met the inescapable hand of God that grabbed him out of that boat and threw him in the water. Why was Jesus in the tomb? Not because of his sin, not because of his rebellion, but because of you and me. As we ran away, as we lied, as we committed racist sins against brothers of the same ilk, he bore the punishment for that in bearing those consequences. He cast himself into the sea of damnation and he was swallowed by a different fish. He was swallowed by the jaws of sin and death. Someone greater than Jonah is here, brothers and sisters. Amen? Jonah would pray in the belly of that fish a prayer of emptiness, devoid of conviction, just going through the motion, and God, for some reason, would deliver him out of that fish out of an unmerited act of mercy. But Jesus, Jesus would pray without ceasing. Jesus would sweat drops of blood. He would cry out to his father as he anticipated those jaws of death, saying, Lord, if it's possible, spare me out of complete, honest integrity. And he would still go when his father did not respond. And his last words would be, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah's last words were him being depressed and despairing because the people he hated repented. Jesus' last words, well, they weren't his last words, were they? Jonah would be vomited in shame by a fish to deliver a message in weakness to a people he hated. Jesus would rip open those jaws of death. He would rise again in power, declaring his omnipotence and blessed status as the conquering Messiah. Jonah, sit down. Jesus is greater. The fish that swallowed Jonah would swim off again to live a nice and happy life. But death was defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Amen. Jesus, what would he do? He would swallow up death in victory. Someone greater than Jonah was standing in front of the Pharisees, and he is here. Jesus is the prophet that none of us deserve. We don't even deserve Jonah. But he came as the better Jonah to show us the path of repentance, and we need no more signs. We have all we need. What is holding us back from repenting, brothers and sisters? What's keeping you in your pew when the music plays and the altar call is made and you know you should go? Jesus gave us all the sign we need. He's the better prophet we don't deserve. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to know what it was like to sit under the feet of King Solomon. 
but someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and he was given it in great supply. But Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the word of God. He's the brilliance of God's plan and action. And a multitude of every tribe and nation will gather at his feet to learn wisdom for eternity. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And Solomon reigned as the wealthiest king of Israel. Pah! Jesus reigned in heaven with the glories and riches of God. Solomon was the product of adultery and murder. And he would go on to become a horrible womanizer. But Jesus was the product of a virgin birth. And he would become the husband of a bride that he would lay down his life for. Rather than fall into debauchery later in life and so contaminate all of his wives, Jesus would become a person to lay down his life so that his bride would be pure and spotless and blameless even as he is pure and, 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 and blameless. Someone greater than Solomon is here, friends. And Solomon built a temple that allowed for the presence of God to take up residence with his people. And last week we heard read in Matthew 12, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. Not a building, but a man. A man who has brought the Holy of Holies that Israel could visit once a year by one represented in the priest. He has brought the Holy of Holies in our hearts. He has brought us the Holy Spirit so that we can have a one-to-one -one relationship with our God. Someone greater than the priests of Israel was there in front of them and is here. The better prophet, the better king, the better priest, Jesus is greater. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted a sign. And some of us here today are still demanding a sign. Just tell me you're real, God. If you would just kind of speak a word, I'd follow you. But we'll line up for hours in the cold for the latest iPhone. We'll work three jobs at a time just to put our kids in the schools we want to put them into. We'll flatter and sacrifice and constantly please others just to get the intimacy that we crave. We'll burn our conscience. We'll throw our morals to the side. We'll leave a life of secrecy for pleasure. Something greater is here. No good thing, no thrilling sin, no experience, no status, nothing is like Jesus. And we can be neutral on a whole host of issues. But we cannot be neutral with our Savior, Jesus Christ. He really rose. These scriptures prophesy it. Jesus predicts it, and then the remainder of the canon testifies to it. History underscores it. In our hearts are screaming right now, if we're honest. Whether we believe or not, we know it is true. And you know what? The Pharisees, they got the sign they wanted, but they refused to believe it even after he rose. They called the soldiers to them and they bribed them. They said, take this money. Spread this false rumor that the disciples broke in and stole his body. What they needed, what we need, more than another sign, is we need the power of the Holy Spirit that they were in danger of blaspheming against.
They were utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to come inside them. And brothers and sisters, you and I are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to come even now to lead us to repentance. The undeniable Messiah demands our faith. There are some things in our lives that are undeniably true. And our choice before us today is will we choose to deny the undeniable or will we choose to bow our knee before our God? And this applies to anyone who has never made a profession of faith. If you're here, maybe perhaps you're a young person, or maybe you just are visiting for the first time, and you've never really, you know you never really sold out, kind of left your possessions behind, left everything on God and said, Lord, take it all. Just, you know what, anything you want, God, is yours. You've never done it. You know there's this area of sin in your life that is more important to you than God, if you're being frank. God is issuing a call to you right now. A warning. The Spirit's work is the only means by which you can be saved. And there is a real hell and real wrath that we'll have to face. But God, in his kindness, made the story not stop with Jesus there. He didn't give up and ascend back to the Father because of the ignorance and the unbelief of the people he was talking to. He would faithfully go to the cross. And if you've never believed on the Lord, called on his name, you can believe in him. Say, Jesus, save me from my sins. Your death is what I need to escape the wrath of God. My bad things I've done, I will never atone for. I need your atoning work. And I want to challenge you to make that first step. I want to challenge you to not allow yourself to stay in a fake neutrality. You're for him or you're against him. But brothers and sisters, if you've been living a Christian life since before I was born, this sermon is for you too. Because you know what? We can believe in Jesus and slip back into a pattern of neutrality, can't we? We can have one time lived a devoted life to God and find ourselves, before we realize it, totally lukewarm about our faith. And for some of us here, God's calling us to a renewed repentance. Not to be saved all over again. It's a one-time act by the Holy Spirit where we're converted. But the, the Christian life is one where we're ongoingly repenting. As we sin and struggle, we continue to come forward to the Lord and lay ourselves out to Him and ask Him for His grace. And what has our Savior promised us in this text? Every sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So whether you have been unfaithful, whether you have looked where you shouldn't have looked, whether you have embezzled, whether you have done things that should be on your criminal record, whether you have a criminal record, whether you don't, whether you don't think your parents accept you, that doesn't disqualify you. Jesus is calling you to repent, to believe, and to experience his lavish love for you again and anew. So we're going to sing a song called The Prodigal. It's based on that parable 
in the, the Gospels. And it walks us through. For some of us, maybe perhaps this is the first time you're stepping forward and you're claiming the Lord Jesus as your Savior right now. But for some of us, this is a renewed repentance moment. We're, we're making action steps in our mind. We're confessing. We're saying, I need to change my life to live for you, Jesus. Well, as we rehearse and recount the story, let us remember that God's grace is enough for us and that as we repent, he will meet us with the help for our obedience. So let's all stand. We're all going to sing together this song, The Prodigal. And if it's not familiar to you, just read along and pray as we sing.